you know, I spent my whole life delving into secrets. I just, I love secrets. And uh, I love to see where things are going on and listen to people. And, and if you listen to people, you find out a lot of information. Ladies and gentlemen, we know of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with the season finale of BOA Audio Season 4, the conclusion to the longest season of BOA Audio ever. I have some bittersweet feelings here as we close the book on Season 4. I've enjoyed the season quite a bit, but at the same time, I am totally burned out, and our usual off-season hiatus is long overdue. Now, before we dive into the meat and potatoes of the season finale here with John Lear, let me throw in some plugs and take care of some business. First of all, obviously, you want to know about when we're going to be coming back with more BOA Audio. When is BOA Audio Season 5 going to premiere I can tell you right now that we're definitely in some uncharted territory here. Usually we run from the fall to the beginning of the summer, but this year we added on some extra episodes, really took our time, and let the season percolate quite a bit. And here we are, the beginning of September, and the season finally wraps up. As such, and in light of my other big project, the Mass Mystery Weekend, we are looking at early to mid-November for the premiere of BOA Audio Season 5. I'm already working on all kinds of cool stuff for the next season of BOA Audio. So keep an eye out at the website. I know November sounds like quite a ways away, but trust me, my friends, it'll be here before you know it. The other thing I want to plug is something we mentioned at the beginning of the last episode, but I want to also put it over again here, the Mass Mystery Weekend, October 16th to the 18th in Watertown, Mass. I'm helping to put this big festivus together here in Massachusetts. An amazing array of big names are going to be here. Nick Redfern, Lauren Coleman, Jeff Belanger, Peter Robbins, Nancy Talbot, Chris Balzano, John Horgan. Talking about a tremendous array of esoteric topics. It is the Mass Mystery Weekend. Three days of really cool stuff going on up here in Massachusetts. You can find out more about the big event at MassMystery.com. Pretty simple, MassMystery.com. I know we have a lot of great New England listeners and folks listening on the peripheral of New England. I hope you make the trip up here in October. Tickets reasonably priced, and if you're a BOA Audio listener, get in touch with me. Let me know you're showing up at the event, and we'll try and hook you up with some cool stuff, if not some extra FaceTime with the speakers, because I definitely want to take care of the BOA Audio listeners who make the trip up here for the Mass Mystery Weekend. October 16th to the 18th, be there or be square. Look forward to meeting a ton of BOA Audio listeners. Third point of order. I'm going to try and keep going through these as fast as possible, folks. We have on the drawing board a complete and thorough Been All of America redesign. We've really got an awesome crew of folks who are hard at work already on putting together a whole new look for BOA. Of course, I'm consulting and 
doing a whole bunch of other stuff to shape the new BOA, as we call it now, BOA 2.0, that's the name of the project, to coincide with the premiere of BOA Audio Season 5 in early to mid-November. And I'm mentioning it here at the beginning of the show because I want your input on what you'd like to see at BOA. What kind of changes do you want on the Banal of America website? We're working on not just redesigning the homepage, but also the audio show pages and a whole bunch of other stuff. Anything you want to say about the BOA website, now's your chance. What sorts of additional features do you want to see? What do you want us to do away with? All that kind of stuff. I want to hear your input for BOA 2.0. You know how to get in touch with me. Just go to Banal of America, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. That'll put you in touch with me. I want to know what you want to see as a part of BOA 2.0 and, of course, BOA Audio Season 5. Now's the time for guest suggestions and all that great stuff as well. And finally, of the plugs here, we got one more left. We usually do this at the end of the show, but since this is the season finale, and I know a ton of folks are going to be listening to this landmark John Lear interview, it's the time of season here where we turn it over to you and ask you to make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. What you're listening to this week is the culmination of a complete season of programs, 34 episodes, 64 hours of audio here in Season 4. That's 24 hours more than last season. Eight hours of international shows, two from the UK, Hong Kong, Ireland, and Sweden. And over the course of 34 episodes, hundreds of thousands of downloads of all these episodes by the amazing and awesome BOA Audio listeners. All of it came to you free of charge, absolutely free, no cost to the BOA Audio listeners. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way for me. The phone calls for all of these episodes, 64 hours worth of phone calls, 8 hours to international locations, the bandwidth, that stuff costs me money. Some folks have been helping us out throughout the year with donations. I thank them from the bottom of my heart. They are amazing people. They have helped us out tremendously. You have no idea how much your donations help. And so today we turn it over to the folks who maybe have been procrastinating, saying I'll take care of that next week, or maybe we'll donate at the end of the season. Now's the time, folks. Later has arrived. Tomorrow has arrived. How do you help us out? How do you make a donation to the program and the website? That's simple. You go to banallofamerica.com or the BOA Audio Archive page, and you click the PayPal button. It's simple. They'll walk you through the process. No donation is too small. All donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio, keeping the program and the website commercial-free and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. All right, now that we've taken care of all that stuff, let's get down to business here, folks. We close the book on this nearly year-long saga that has been BOA Audio Season 4 with one of the more enigmatic and infamous figures in the history of UFO studies, John Lear. The season finale is a showcase of the immortals. It is where we bring on these historic figures who have shaped the world of esoterica and really give them their due. And John Lear is one of those people, my friends. He forever altered the landscape of esoterica, and that's why we have him here on the season finale to really pick his brain, not just on his theories on a lot of this stuff, but also his role in the history of UFO studies. We cover so much stuff in this two-hour conversation, it's going to be nearly impossible 
for me to sum it all up here in a point-by-point -point thing, but we're going to try and do it nice and quick for you. In the beginning, we're going to cover the wild days of the 1980s in ufology. Some of the key figures, Paul Benowitz, Bill Cooper, Bill Moore, major events, the 1989 MUFON convention in Las Vegas, Bob Lazar and the Area 51 story bursting on the scene as well. We're also going to talk about something from John's 1987 Lear briefing about an alien spaceship that allegedly crashed and was buried by the U.S. government. Some of the stuff John's been saying about souls and reincarnation and how the aliens may fit in all that. The Dulce underground base incident, human mutilations, UFO disclosure, 2012, moon anomalies, the secret space program, secret undersea connections beneath the western half of the U.S., John's theories on 9-11, exopolitics, and the state of ufology today. That's just a thumbnail look at all the different stuff we're going to be talking about here with John Lear. I'm telling you, my friends, this is definitely one you're going to want to hear. It's one I'm sure is going to be listened to and enjoyed for years to come. Another stratospheric guest here to close the season out, John Lear. Couldn't be happier with how this one turned out and really looking forward to hearing what folks have to say about the enigmatic and infamous John Lear. For those of you who are unfamiliar with John Lear, he's got quite a bio, and I'm going to try and get it all out to you right now, so bear with me. Here is a little bit of background on John Lear. John Lear is a retired airline captain and former CIA contract pilot with over 19,000 hours of flight time, over 11,000 in command of three or four engine jet transports, has flown over 100 different types of aircraft in 60 different countries around the world. He is, of course, the son of Learjet inventor Bill Lear, and he holds more FAA Airman certificates than any other FAA-certified airman. He's held 17 world records, including speed around the world in a Learjet Model 24, set in 1966, and was presented with the Professional Air Traffic Controls Association Award for Outstanding Airmanship in 1968. John Lear's role in shaping ufology's history is beyond dispute. In 1988, he met and became friends with Bob Lazar, the government scientist who worked on the back engineering of the propulsion system of the ET UFOs at Area S-4 outside of Area 51. In March of 1989, Lazar took John to an area close to Rachel, Nevada, where he witnessed the flight of a flying saucer at the exact time Lazar told him it would occur. Shortly thereafter, the Area 51 story exploded onto the UFO scene and has been a staple of ufology and esoterica ever since. Art Bell has credited John Lear with influencing the early direction of the Art Bell Show, which subsequently became Coast to Coast AM, towards focusing mainly on the esoteric. John Lear was also responsible for bringing the Area 51 story to the attention of George Knapp, thus planting the seed for Knapp's future explorations of the UFO topic as well. John Lear's website is www.thelivingmoon.com. Pretty simple, all one word, www.thelivingmoon.com. Check it out, an amazing array of material from John Lear at thelivingmoon.com. Tons of stuff to dig into and read from the amazing John Lear. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on August 7th, 2009. The enigmatic and infamous John Lear on the season finale of VOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the season finale of BOA Audio Season 4. And as the longtime listeners know, we 
love to end the season on a bang with a supernova of a guest. Last year, of course, Jacques Vallée. Two years ago, Brad Steiger. And the very first year, we closed out the season with Gary McKinnon. And I'm really happy to say that this year, we are definitely going in the legend route as well. For people who've only been around for a while, like me, he originally was really just heard of in passing. He had been out of the field for a long time, kind of has made a comeback in the last few years, and uh, was hugely influential in the 1980s and uh, into the early 90s. And if you listen to uh, any Art Bell interviews where he talks about the early days of Coast to Coast, or you listen to any George Knapp interviews like earlier this year when he was on BOA Audio, they both cite interviews with our guests here this week as critical points in uh, their careers for when they got into the UFO subject. So in my opinion, he's criminally underappreciated for his influence on the field of esoterica, and I want to salute him here this week on the program and really highlight his amazing career and his thoughts on just a whole host of different esoteric topics. He is, of course, the legendary John Lear, infamous to some, beloved by many, I'm very excited to be talking to him, and I'm honored and thrilled that, uh, you know, he would allow us to have him here on the program for the season finale. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you for being our season finale guest this year. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. First, let's, of course, throw out the plug, the website, thelivingmoon.com. That's your website. People should check that out for just a ton of stuff from you on there. If they haven't investigated your work yet, they must be living under a rock. I guess, you know, we usually start out with the bio background, but you're such a legend that most people know about, you know, a lot of what you've done in the field. And we're going to talk a lot about sort of your early years in the, the 85 to 92 period today. So we don't really need to get you to talk about that too much. I guess this is almost a lighthearted question, but in a way it's, it's serious as well. Now, I know that you were in the field of ufology, you know, per se. It's really it's a, it's a ragtag field, if you will, anyway, from 85 to about 92, and then you got out for a while, and then you sort of have been making this comeback uh, over the last, you know, four or five years. As I said, kind of a lighthearted question, but kind of serious. I mean, you were out. Why would you want to come back into this mess that is, uh, you know, the paranormal scene and ufology as a public figure when, you know, you could have just sort of faded to the background, done your own research, and not had to deal with all the all the people, you know, that are thorns in, in a lot of people's sides. Well, the truth is my daughter was in a very serious auto accident about the time that I was saying some really new stuff on uh, the moon and things like that, and I thought that might have been a message, but I waited a year or a year and a half or however long it was and then decided maybe it wasn't and then decided to get back in again. So you didn't have any reservations about having to deal with all the various uh, cliques and factions and fiefdoms that is the UFO world? No. They're all, they're all real interesting. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's let's sort of like, uh, you know, look back a little bit to the 80s period because, as I said uh, before we started the interview, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the 89 MUFON Symposium, and I was only 10 years old when that happened. So I have to go by what other people tell me as far as uh, what was going on back then. And I guess the first sort of character from that period of time that I wanted to talk to you about was Paul Benowitz because I've always been sort of interested in his story. I'm good friends with Greg Bishop, who wrote uh, Project Beta, which is sort of the Benowitz story. Um, and I know that you, you know, you talked to him for quite a bit back then when he was really in the thick of it. So I guess what were your impressions of what he had to say and, and what happened to him, you know, at the hands of the AFOSI? First of all, the, the reason I got into all of the UFO stuff 
was I just by chance picked up a book by Bud Hopkins called Missing Time. And I, when I read that book, I, I felt to myself, this is real. This is this real stuff that's going on. Yeah. So I started uh, investigating, and then the next thing that happened is I met a friend of mine at a uh, Southeast Asia pilots reunion, Greg Wilson, and uh, he happened to mention that uh, uh, after Southeast Asia, he was transferred to uh, Bentwaters and flew A-10s there for a while. And I said, oh, Bentwaters, that's where the uh, famous Bentwaters uh, incident happened, uh, supposedly happened. He said, no, not supposedly, it did. I didn't get to see it, John, but because I was uh, confined to quarters, but I know the guys who did. So then I started really checking around, and of course, those days, we didn't have an internet, and everything went by telephone or, or by snail mail. Yeah. And... Uh, we had a group that uh, met in Crestone, Colorado in 87. There was eight of us, and uh, Linda Howe, and I forget, Tom Adams was there, some other guys. Anyway, they introduced me to, to some real interesting information and uh, got to read the uh, Benoit stuff. Well, then uh, I thought it would be really neat to meet him, so I drove down to Albuquerque, introduced myself, and uh, spent a couple of days of, uh, at his house as his guest. And uh, he told me his whole story and uh, even gave me the transcripts of the uh, uh, Myrna Hansen interview. She was the one that was abducted, mm -hmm. uh, went to Tulsi. And uh, it was sure all very, very interesting, and he was very convincing. And... Uh, the people that say, oh, he was just, uh, he just was uh, being fed information. That's not true. He came up with the information first, and then AFOSI was the one said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, we, we fed it to him. And uh, th that wasn't the, the true. The true thing was, uh, was that all the stuff that he told about the crash on Archuleta Mountain and and uh, and the uh, story with Myrna Hansen were all very true. And one very sad note here is about three we three or four weeks before he died, he called me and said, "John, I I would like to see you. Uh, can you come to Albuquerque?" And I said, to "Paul, I'll try, but I'm really short on cash now." He said, "Well, if you can." I'd sure like to talk to you, and I and I didn't go, and then he passed away, and and that's happened several times with very good friends of mine. So I'm trying to not to make that mistake again. The friend in Las Vegas here uh, was uh, a very high navy guy named Scotty Lyons. He was uh, one of the first members of SEAL Team Six, the uh, the secret one, and he called me a couple times from a hospital bed you know, saying that he wasn't doing very well, but he would like to talk to me. And I didn't go and see him. And, uh, you know, and the, it happened that the day that I did plan to go see him, I called and his wife said, he's already gone, John. Oh, man. So uh, that, that's been happening a couple times here. And it's kind of getting irritating. <laughs> I can imagine. So kind of what you're saying here is that people shouldn't really discount the Benowitz stuff straight out of hand based on what they've kind of heard about the whole story originally. Absolutely not. All the Benowitz stuff, as far as I'm concerned, is true. 
all right, now have you vetted a lot of that stuff with, with the kind of sources that you have? Just sort of like, have you heard this sort of same stuff from other people as well where it gets to the point where that you become of that opinion? Yeah, you know, I was there with him for uh, two or three days. I know some of the uh, mistakes he, he made uh, as far as identification of, uh, of uh, saucers, but there's no doubt about it. He had, you know, he had his uh, house looked over the Montana weapons storage area, and he had movies of uh, saucers taking off and, and landing, and uh, I had a whole bunch of those, and somebody somebody took them out of my desk drawer. I think I still have a couple of them, but they are real. He took them, and, uh, and they are real saucers. And then uh, the other character I wanted to ask you about was Bill Cooper, uh, who, of course, is – he's still wildly popular, which is really kind of surprising in a way because I still get emails from people asking me about him and stuff. And, and I know that you were sort of running in the same circles with him, and, and uh, you do tell a great story on that Project Camelot video interview about you know kind of when you and Bill went your separate ways, and you said he had the UFO disease. And uh, hopefully you'll talk a little bit about that as well. But I guess just tell us a little bit about Bill Cooper, your interactions with him, and, and what you think he was up to. Yeah, well, the um, that was when the Internet was first starting, and uh, Jim Spicer started up Paranet. And I got on the Paranet and uh, started talking about the stuff, uh, UFO stuff, and then Bill Cooper came on Paranet and said, I can verify uh, 100% of what John's saying, I thought. And I thought, boy, I got to meet this guy. So I invited him up to uh, Vegas, and we spent uh, three or four days together uh, exchanging information. And the original information I heard from him, I think, was absolutely true. But uh, he got UFO disease, and UFO disease is you get so popular with what you're saying. And you don't have any more stories, so you make them up. And uh, Bill started making stuff up. And uh, it really bothered me because uh, the first time I noticed it is, is one of the television stations uh, called PM Magazine came down from Salt Lake City to interview Bill and I. And we got to talking about uh, the Excalibur Project, which was... Uh, the uh, military project of designing a missile that could go at least uh, 200 feet below the ground and then explode. It was 200 feet or 500 feet or, or something like that. And the other was the Krill Project. And the Krill Project was a, a paper written by uh, John Grace, who was then with the Air Force, and it was, uh, and he used to live near me. And, and all that was was a, a compilation of where we thought the UFO question was, uh, the status was. And instead of naming it something like uh, the UFO this or the UFO that, we decided to give it the name of a person. So John says, uh, what was, so can you think of a name? And I said, yeah, Krill. But let's spell it K-R-L-L-L. -L -L. Well, the real Krill, C-R-L-L-L, -L -L, was the alien that the Pentagon had for some time uh, communicated with in the early 50s. 
and there, that story is in uh, several of the old UFO books. But I changed the C to, to K, and then he came up with the initials OH, which originally didn't mean anything, but eventually uh, Bill said that it was his omnipotent Highness Krill. <laughs> and they became the O.H. Krill Papers, and uh, there was a big to-do about that. Anyway, the PM Magazine uh, comes down, and they start asking about this, and uh, Bill made the statement that he had read both the Krill Papers and the uh, Excalibur Papers while he was in the Navy uh, 10, 15 years ago. Well, a little bit later, I got him alone. I said, what in the hell are you talking about? John Grace and I wrote the Grill Papers, and Bob Lazar wrote the Excalibur Project from information he found out at Los Alamos. He says, no, no, I read these in the Navy, you know, which was impossible. It was 15 years ago. Yeah. So we started to, you know, we, we parted ways on that. And uh, before he passed away, he called up and apologized and said, you know, John, actually, we were both after the same thing, is to trying to get the information out. So I appreciated that. Yeah. And then uh, what about Rick Doty? Did you ever have any run-ins with him when he was, you know? Never, never. All I've heard is stories of Rick Doty, primarily from Linda Howe, uh, some from uh, Benowitz, uh, and then the rest of the stuff you read on the Internet. And I don't follow it very much. Yeah. Rick yeah. Doty works for the Air Force. He does what he's told. And uh, he got involved in that SERPA project. And uh, I never did follow that whole thing. But uh, supposedly he was saying a number of people were sent to Zeta Reticuli and spent 20 years there and played soccer. And, and all that was BS. The, the truth of the matter is... I heard that we sent three people there, and two people came back. One died while he was there. Of the two people that came back, one had uh, extreme psychological problems, and one was completely normal. Now, okay. I don't know whether that's true, but that's the way I heard the story. So apparently somebody did go to Zeta Reticuli, but I don't think it was 12 people, and I don't think they played soccer there. <laughs> All right, this is probably a good point for me just to sort of ask, I guess, you know, as I said, infamous to some, and I know a lot of people just have all sorts of different opinions of you. I, you know, I, I told a bunch of different people when we were doing the interview, and, and, you know, some people said you were with the government, and some people said you were being misled by the government, and some people said you just believe what you're saying. And the question, I guess, is just like, you know, where do you get the bulk of your information from? Is it just various people on the inside or – you know, your own research into other people's work and then, you know, extrapolate on that and, and, you know, doing your own sort of analysis, if you will. That's about it. That's, that's about the way that it happens. I don't have any insiders. Uh, I know that Clifford, I know Clifford Stone real well. Uh, he is kind of an insider. He knows a lot, but he doesn't tell everything. Uh, I spent a couple of days down at his home. Bill English was a real insider and of course he has disappeared uh the last time i saw him was in sunspot uh sunspots i think in new mexico and uh, 
he was uh, destitute and uh, doing very poorly. But he was the one that told me the details of Grudge 13, exactly how he happened to see it, exactly what he saw. And we talked for two days about it. And there's just absolutely no doubt in my mind that the Grudge 13 papers are absolutely true. Okay. And then the final guy, I guess, from that era that I wanted to talk to you about, just Bill Moore, because I know, uh, you know, he was sort of in the, that whole mix, and then we all know what happened with the 89 MUFON Symposium, and, and then he sort of bailed on ufology shortly thereafter. And I know that you do reference a lot of his stuff in the 87 uh, Lear Briefing, for lack of a better title. So I guess, you know, what are your thoughts on Bill Moore and, and what he was up to back then during the 1980s? Well, Bill Moore knew so much about it when I first got into it, I honestly and truly didn't think anybody knew anything about this. <laughs> I didn't even think the military knew about this. So I was always on my soapbox and saying, man, you got to believe me, this stuff is real. It's going on now. Well, of course, you know, Bill was way ahead of me because uh, he was hooked up with Stan Friedman, and uh, they hooked up with... Um, yeah, Jesse Marzell. And, uh, you know, they were researching that stuff when I was just barely finding out that flying saucers were real. So uh, when the uh, MJ papers came out and uh, there was a lot of stuff that was uh, excised uh, on those papers, I was really excited. And uh, I thought, you know, if this is true, then everything else is true. So what I did was um, I knew that uh, uh, I had known Jimmy Doolittle ever since uh, I was a youngster. He used to hang around the house. As a matter of fact, turns out that all these MJ guys, or some of them, used to hang around my house. And the reason <laughs> was is because my dad was involved in the UFO project. He was one of the primary contractors on anti-gravity, and that's in some papers in 1952, uh, which are uh, on the living moon. Anyway, he, I didn't know, I have any idea who was involved in this, but uh, I did know Jimmy Doolittle and grew up knowing him and would see him at various conventions in the uh, Experimental Test Pilots Association and was always very friendly and if ever I came across a picture of him I would send it to him and, and ask him to autograph it and, and he would always autograph it. And then he retired and he lived up in Monterey, uh, Monterey Bay, uh, Carmel. And uh, so I knew that Jimmy was deep into the UFO thing. I don't think he was a part of MJ-12, but he was as close as them as you could get without actually having a, a seat on MJ-12. Yeah. So I thought this would be the guy that knew. So fortunately for me, my mom was still alive, and she was still in touch with Jimmy, and they would talk every once in a while. And uh, they had been close all their lives, me and my dad and Jimmy and his wife, Cho Doolittle. And then Joe passed away, and as I said, uh, Jimmy lived in uh, Monterey. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I'm going to have Mom call. The plan was this, have Mom call Jimmy and say, Jimmy, how's it going? It's Moya, nice to talk to you. Uh, 
uh, everything's fine. Uh, I was going to ask you something. You know, John's gotten involved in this uh, UFO thing, and I don't know whether it's good or bad, but I would like to know if if Majestic is really true. And so it took about six months of me pleading with her to call and say, look, it's not going to hurt anything. Just call him and ask him. If he says no, fine. If he says yes, you know, it'll really mean something. So I finally got her to call, and she asked the question, and he says, yes, Moy, it is, but I can't say anything about it. So that was the key to me that um, while, you know, Bill Moore was accused of this and that, that those MJ-12 papers were real or they were copies of real stuff. And as it turns out, uh, all the stuff was real. Now, there's certain people say they were fakes, and uh, but I don't believe it. I, I believe all the stuff that uh, was on those Ahmed Eisenhower briefing was real. All right. And I guess what was your reaction when all the more revelations, I guess you could say, went down? I know it was crazy there at the 89 MUFON Symposium anyway because they didn't want you and Bill Cooper to speak and stuff like that. And you guys talked about having a mutiny and stuff. I guess talk a little bit about that scene because it's really, you know. It's it was like really the, an interesting thing because I was MUFON state director for that year. And it was my uh, it was my privilege to pick the speakers. And I picked um, Don Ecker, myself. I think it was Bill English or or Clifford Stone, and I can't remember the fourth one. Anyway, they were so highly controversial that the board of directors of MUFON said, no way, no way, look, we'll pick the speakers. So as head of the conference, I could do pretty much what I what I could do, and having lived in Vegas for many years, I knew a few things, so what I did is I rented a convention hall right next to the MUFON <laughs> for the uh, for the Sunday speakers, and I had Bill, me, and and uh, the two other guys. Uh, oh, Bill Cooper was the was the fourth guy, okay. and uh, <clears throat> and we just kind of outdrew them. Uh, it was crazy. I mean, so many people showed up and um, and were so interested in it. And at the same time, you know, Bill uh, Moore was doing his thing over at the MUFON convention. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway, everything came off great, and everything, everybody was happy, and uh, uh, that was the uh, the uh, story on the '89 MUFON convention. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's like Dylan goes electric. That for me, that '89 MUFON symposium. If I could go back and check it out, I, I, I definitely would. Now, it sounds like around that time, there was sort of developed a schism, I guess you could say, in ufology, where there were people who wanted to sort of stay with the old way of doing things, you know, and collect sightings and stuff like that, and then people who were more on your end, who were sort of trying to uncover, you know, maybe what this cover-up conspiracy was. Is that accurate, you think? Yeah, well, uh, see, 1988 is when I met Bob Lazar, and uh, he went out to work with S4 and told us, yes, it was true. He'd been in the saucer. He'd seen the alien. Uh, it was all real, and we were trying to integrate that. And uh, MUFON, of course, was still, uh, you know, asking, well, compared to the size of your thumb, how big was it, you know? <laughs> And uh, what direction was it going, and that kind of stuff. 
and all of us were in, hey, guys, it's really going on. These guys are really here. And, uh, and, and the government knows about it, and they have their testing area up at uh, S4. So it was a clash in 88 because see, all this had already happened uh, by the time the, uh, the MUFON convention started. And, of course, I was the first guy to alert everybody that there was a place called Area 51 Groom Lake, and, and then that became a, a, a big controversial subject because nobody was actually denying it, and it was on the map, and uh, it just became well-known from them. Absolutely, yeah. As I was saying in the introduction, criminally underappreciated uh, some of your contributions here to the field. You're one of the godfathers of Area 51. I heard you on with George Knapp and uh, Gene Huff a few months ago on Coast to Coast, so I'm glad. Uh, obviously, George Knapp knows and recognizes your contributions. So, you know, for the people that want to sell John Lear short, they need to learn their history of ufology, I think, regardless of the veracity of what you're saying. The interesting thing is George Knapp, is really sharp and I had a friend here in Vegas who was a reporter for KLIS TV and Channel 8 and before that he was with the Valley Times and he I had given him a couple of really big stories one of us one of them really got me in trouble because it was 1981 and I told him about the stealth fighter and he wrote about it uh, in an article but he thought I said stealth fire, F-I-R-E, instead of fighter. And so the FBI poked around for a few days and grilled him, and and uh, they never came by to talk to me. But uh, that was a kind of a big story. Anyway, um, the Valley Times went out of business, and uh, uh, Ned was invited over to uh, KLIS. So I used to go in and give him some interesting stories that I knew about. So I walked in one day just loaded with this UFO information and I sat, I remember sitting there we were in one on one of the stages and there were just a couple of seats there and there was nobody around and I gave him this pitch and uh, standing in the but uh, kind of behind us and listening to what was going on was George Knapp and uh, when I got through pitching uh, Ned Day, he said, John, this is not possible. And the reason it's not possible is because I would have known. So I got up to leave and, uh, George grabbed my arm and he said, John, would, would you, could you tell me a little bit about it? And that's how it all started with George. Uh, I mean, he wanted to know about it. He wanted to know why I believed it. And uh, he took it from there and ran. Absolutely, yeah. I just want to jump back one touch a little bit here and just ask, um, when all the stuff about Bill Moore uh, working with the government and all that came out, did it make you think twice about you know anything that you had come to believe up until that point? No. No, I, I, I didn't think much about that. Of course, some of the stuff he passed around might have been uh, – there was a few telexes and stuff that were kind of strange – but uh, no, the uh, uh, I still had the faith in the uh, the MJ12 papers. Okay, all right, we're we're sort of heading out of the 80s now, and I, I do want to jump ahead a little bit to uh, something you'd said during the Camelot video, and that uh, this is really sort of recent, I guess. But uh, you know, you've been 
or you had been talking to this guy Sleeper on Above Top Secret, I believe, and, and uh, you said after you talked to him, you'd come to the realization that you were wrong about the aliens harvesting us and, and the stuff about the souls. So I guess extrapolate a little bit more on that, because I remember you saying a lot of that stuff on Coast to Coast um, around 04, and I just want to get some clarification, I guess you could say, on, on where you stand on that whole idea of, you know, that we're containers for souls and that they're harvesting the souls and that they go to the moon. And I think that was kind of some of the stuff you were saying back then. I started running out of information and people just wanted to know more and more. So I said that uh, I felt um, that, uh, of course, from uh, from Bob Lazar, we knew that the aliens called us containers. Now, he didn't know what we contained, whether we're talking about DNA, whether we're talking about souls or what, because they never told him. So um, then uh, one of the, one of the uh, you know, always the question is, well, uh, is there a soul? What is reincar- reincarnation? Uh, stuff like that. And I thought from uh, several things I'd heard that it was impossible to uh, retrieve a soul from anybody that died in a shipwreck like under sea or in a mine. I thought it was impossible to get a soul out. And that's when Sleeper appeared. And Sleeper appeared on ATS, and he had already written 100 pages, which I had missed. And so I had to catch up. And in the first five pages, uh, I thought, you know what? What I'm reading is the truth. And I got to page 18, and there was no doubt in my mind, this guy knew exactly what was going on because so much of the stuff he said meshed with what I knew. So I started uh, communicating with him on the uh, on the first thread, and uh, he said, uh, "You're wrong about the souls. They can uh, retrieve the souls from anybody uh, who dies anywhere. And yes, the soul uh, is transferred to. Uh, it is." Uh, reincarnation is true, uh, that as soon as you die, uh, you get a quick look at your life, no judgment, but a quick look at the good things and the bad things you did, and then you get inserted back into a newborn baby about uh, three three days old or so. That's, that's how it normally works. Uh, so, and then about that time, I started reading a book by um, one of the re- foremost remote viewers, uh, his name has slipped my mind here for just a second, he wrote Mind Trek, oh, McGonagall, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he was uh, tasked at one point by the army to follow the soul of a man who had just died in a car accident near Monterey, and so he told the story that uh, he followed the soul and it was headed for the moon. He said, he, as he kept following it and getting closer to the moon, he kept getting a message saying, uh, you can't come here, this is not your place. Uh, and it kept getting louder, you can't come here, you are not allowed here, this is not your place. Until the point where he felt his very life was being threatened by following this soul. And uh, so he broke off the uh, 
the chase and uh, finished his uh, remote viewing. Well, at the same time I was reading that, I had seen uh, the uh, Richard Hoagland videotape called Moon Mars Connection Number Two. And in that video, he shows the huge tower on the moon that's in the middle of uh, the sinus medi. And of course, you know the moon is in rotational lock. If you look dead center at the moon, right in the center, and it never moves, there's a huge tower there. It's about six miles tall. It's made of a glass-type object. And I say glass. I don't know what it was, but you can see through it. Uh, and it, it stands on a tripod. The tripod is about five miles high. There's, there's uh, three uh, support columns, and then on the top, there's a huge cube, and it's one mile on each side. And so thinking that uh, that uh, McGonagall had followed that soul to the uh, moon, I thought, well, maybe that antenna, which is pointed directly at Earth, is where the souls go. And that's where I still think they go, except Sleeper says that's not true. And, of course, uh, most of all of Sleeper's information is true, so we have a couple of uh, things that we have agreed not to agree on. <laughs> and uh, one of them is he believes that uh, the Apollo missions went to the moon. I am adamant and absolutely positive that Apollo missions did not go to the moon. It was all faked, and there's so much information over that that uh, there's just no doubt in my mind that uh, <clears throat> Neil, Buzz, and Michael never went in Apollo 11, and none of, none of the others went up to uh, Apollo 17. It was all a, a, a ruse. Uh, Stanley Kubrick did the uh, the filming, the fake uh, the filming, and, uh, you know, there's just little incidents, for instance, the uh, Apollo astronauts have never had a group reunion. Now, it seems odd that, you know, some of the most select people on Earth would get together once a year and a toast to their their mission, but they never have. Yeah. And none of them talk all that much, except Edgar, Edgar Mitchell. Neil doesn't say anything. Buzz says a few things. Uh, I've read all the Apollo books. And it's very detailed, and then they they put on a good show, but they did not go to the moon. Okay, all right. So anyway, um, that's the story on the tower on the uh, the moon, and Sleeper says that uh, that's not a soul collector. Soul collectors are various places, including on the moon, but mostly they're on Earth. Okay, so the basic premise of what you're saying hasn't changed from '04. It's just the uh, right. just the execution, I guess you'd say. Now, two of the people that I talked to before we did the interview both sort of had the same question. That was just like, uh, and you sort of already answered it, but uh, I guess I'm going to sort of put out more of the question here. It's just like why you believe this sleeper guy, and you sort of already kind of said that, but I guess I'm going to presume that the information that he was putting out there that you saw that made you believe that he's telling the truth and knows what he's talking about must be information that you'd heard but hasn't been released yet because otherwise he could have just been parroting what you've been saying all along. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, but not only that, the stuff that he says uh, sounds logical and real. And uh, like I say, the first four or five pages of the thread, uh, he said some things that really rang true, said, you know, that, that said, this is really the truth. This is what's going on. And he wrote uh, the two books, A Day with an Extra Terrestrial, and um, the other one about Roswell, and uh, I forget what the name of that one was. But read both of those, and they're just absolutely fascinating with with real information and what really happened. Okay, okay. So he wrote these books. Does he does he write it as Sleeper, or is it, do you know his name? Is it out there? Or Yeah, he wrote it as uh, Lou Baldwin. Okay. Well, I did want to ask you about uh, a couple elements from the 1987 uh, Lear briefing. Hopefully that's not too long ago for you. That was, as I said, uh, quite a while ago. I was eight when it came out, so I just <laughs> recently got reacquainted with it. Uh, you do mention in, in that that a saucer crashed, and it was so big that the logistics to move it were impossible, so it remains buried at the site. Now, that was in 87. Has there been any change with regards to that buried saucer? No, that saucer is up in uh, southern... Um it's just across the border from northern Nevada in Utah, and it um, it was a subject of um, one of the conventions of uh, crash retrievals. And I'm trying to think of the name of the of the little town it's at, but uh, it's there, and uh, they built a little few little buildings there. It's it's something like Desert Research Institute. Now that's not it yeah. because there is a Desert Research Institute, but but that's not the name of it. It's something like that. And the aerial photographs show that something huge touched down there that uh, is different from any of the topography around there. So what we fig and and also we have audio statements from a uh, person who was uh, was allowed to go down in there, and, and what they did is they built three or four buildings on the uh, perimeter, maybe, I'm trying to think, a mile away or so. <clears throat> and in these buildings, uh, there's steps that go underground, and then there's a long passageway to the ship. And then uh, you go in through this long passageway, and then you can go into the ship. Uh, and a few years ago, uh, some people broke into there and um, found uh, a, um, a sign-in book of uh, people who had been there. And it was just amazing, you know, Air Force, Navy, DOD, Pentagon, uh, Army, just all kinds of diff um, military uh, signatures and people who were involved in the military. So. That's where at least one of the huge vehicles crashed and is uh, and is buried. Okay, so people in ufology kind of know where it's at, and they've done their best, I guess you could say, to uh, get information on it. Yeah. Interesting. All right, and now let's talk a little bit about the Dulce base because I know you've talked quite a bit about it, and uh, kind of like what we were saying about the whole Benowitz stuff. A lot of people write off the Dulce base as a as a creation of the Benowitz era. But I gather that you've heard of the Dulce base and more specifically the whole thing with the battle at Dulce between the EBE and, and the soldiers and all that stuff. I presume that you've heard this from other places outside of, uh, you know, sort of the original ruminations out of Benowitz. Yeah, um, 
several places, and of course there there was it wasn't a battle, and it wasn't the U.S. against the aliens. What happened is uh, a gray was giving a class to 44 U.S. scientists in this room, and somehow by accident a security man walked in the room with a sidearm. It was in a holster, and it had been. Um, told to everybody and ingrained in everybody's brains that no ammunition of any kind would be allowed around where a gray was or that man would be killed. Now, for whatever reason, this security officer walked in uh, with a holster, I don't know, but the, uh, the alien who was teaching the 44 scientists uh, instantly killed him. And, of course, all this is being seen on video by the uh, Delta security and say they all came down in mass to take revenge on uh, this one guy being killed, and they were all killed along with all the scientists, and I think there was 66 people killed. And uh, I learned about that story from uh, Benowitz, I think, in... Uh, 87 or 88, and then heard some other rumors, uh, and then when Bob Lazar went to S4, he read the story, a briefing on the story. The only difference was it, it was not called Dulce. He said that, that they said that it happened at Area 51, and my answer to that is maybe his clearance hadn't risen high enough for him to know about Dulce, although he said he heard the word Dulcie mentioned several times, people going to and people coming from Dulcie. So Dulcie exists. Uh, there was a firefight, but it wasn't a battle between uh, the U.S. and the aliens. It was just uh, one incident uh, in which a lot of people got killed by accident. All right, and then uh, and I'm referencing here the 87 uh, Lear briefing, which I presume is kind of like what you were saying earlier about the... Uh Krill papers, sort of a state of affairs of where you were at or where the you thought the field was at in 87. That's a kind of a pretty good assumption. Exactly. That was the first thing I wrote. And, hey, guys, you're not going to believe this, but, you know, and then I started telling all the stuff that I thought I knew. Okay, yeah. And, and there you lay it out that in 84, the government, or let's just, the MJ-12, uh, the people who know what's going on, started to panic because they realized that uh, they had gotten the raw end of the deal with the aliens and that the aliens weren't on our side, and that the government had sold the aliens to the world as friendly via E.T. and Close Encounters. And that's what you said went on in 84. Here we are, like, 25 years later. What do you think the state of affairs is with regards to, you know, the government's perspective on, on the alien presence? I don't know what they know, but the truth is, is exactly what the sleeper says, is that the Greys are watchers, and uh, they're in charge of the containers. Uh, they have nothing to do with the soul, even though if they're asked to, they can change souls from one body to another or put a soul someplace, but that's not their, their primary job. Their primary job is, is similar to a lube and oil, you know, check the fan belt, check the battery uh, level, fluid level, check the oil, check the oil filter, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. The first check you get is uh, when you're three or four years old, 
Uh, second check is when you're seven or eight. The third check is when you're uh, 13 or 14. And they actually pick you up and uh, take you to the moon, and you stay there for an hour or so for this check and then bring you back. And it happens to everybody, just just not, you know, like one in ten and one in five or a few special people. It happens to every single person on this earth. They get taken to the moon. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And and I guess what do you base this information on is the best, you know, response I guess for that. Like I said, the McMonagall story and um members of my family uh, who have vivid, vivid, complete memories of being on, being taken to and and uh, and examined on the moon, okay. uh, the underground bases on the moon. All right. So then, I guess from what you're saying now, then, so they're not necessarily bad. They're more apathetic, I guess you could say, about the human race, or I don't know. What, what's your take on that? Uh, on the Greys? Yeah. They're, uh, they're neither good nor bad. They have a job to do, and their job is to uh, take care of the containers uh, to see that uh, we don't die before where everything is written. Uh, everything has been planned. Nothing happens by accident. Uh, and if somebody happens to, uh, to get killed uh, or seriously injured, and it's not in the plan. There's a cleanup crew of graves that go in and fix it by uh, uh, suspending time and and uh, and doing different times. It's called the cleanup crew, and they try and and salvage uh, to put things back the way they they were supposed to go. Interesting. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So you mean like? What do you mean if someone dies by accident, like in a car accident or someone of more importance? Yeah. Yeah. If a guy. Uh, your life is written out exactly what you're going to do, exactly when you're going to die, exactly what's going to happen in your whole life. Uh, and you get to make choices here and there. But basically, you're going to follow the plan. Uh, and if you're not following the plan, life is going to be very, very difficult for you. But but most people find their way and, and uh, find, find you know what what they feel more comfortable doing and what they feel more comfortable do, doing is what is already written if they happen to get involved in a car accident or some kind of accident that that wasn't in the plan the cleanup crew comes in and tries to salvage it all right but if it was planned then i guess then they're just dead that way yeah when it's your time to die you're going to die. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter how much you drink, how many cigarettes you smoke, how many vegetables you eat, how many days, how many hours you run a day, how healthy you are. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is when it's your turn to die, <laughs> you're going, man. Nice. That's the best news I've heard all summer. I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> Take that to heart and have some beers tonight. Don't uh, worry about it because um, as soon as you die, you'll be given a complete review of your life. And it's amazing. Every little, teeny, tiny slight that you've ever done to anybody is shown to you. And there's billions of them. And every good thing that you've done is shown to you. And there's billions of them and it only takes a short time to do this and you're not judged nobody says no, you shouldn't do that 
uh, now this was good, this was bad, all you're done is, is they show you and let you make your own judgment. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then immediately you're put back in a newborn baby and you start all over again. And the, and the bottom line is to learn to live your life with integrity and to learn to live your life without envy, hate, or greed. And that's the whole bottom line of life. And uh, so as soon as you learn that, then you get to go out and play with adults. And by playing with the adults, our solar system has more people in it than you can imagine. Uh, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Newton, Neptune, Pluto, all those planets are just chock full of millions of people. And not only the planets, but the satellites of all the planets are chock full of millions and millions of people. And they're going back and forth all the time and doing all kinds of things. And uh, when you learn uh, to live your life with integrity and to live it without envy, hate, or greed, then you get to go out and, and uh, see all that stuff yeah. and how amazing it is and how neat it is. If you can imagine heaven, then uh, exponentially multiply that by a thousand. And uh, that's what it's like when you finally graduate. But uh, you can't graduate. There's no way to cheat. They'll know when you're ready. They'll know when you've learned to live your life with uh, integrity and without envy, hate, or greed. And, and when you do, you get to go play with the big boys. Nice, nice. Now, I'm just going to throw the, you know, the reincarnation skeptic question out at you that, that most of the skeptics use, and, and uh, I'm really not a pro or con reincarnation guy anyway, so I don't I don't have a dog in this fight, so <laughs> don't worry about that. But, uh, you know, the whole idea that it's, like, mathematically impossible for reincarnation because the population keeps, you know, getting bigger, and therefore where are all these extra, you know, souls or whatever coming from? What's your what's your take on that whole argument? They may, they're made... Don't worry, there's plenty of souls to go around. <laughs> they keep making them. All right, sounds good. Yeah, don't worry about it. There's there's plenty of souls. <laughs> and now the only other thing from the 87 uh, Lear briefing I want to talk to you about is just this. Uh, you mentioned that they had been planning since 68 a series of documentaries to reveal the truth about UFOs. This is uh, the MJ-12 and those in the know, if you will. Obviously, you don't know what their plans are, but... You know, where do you think they stand on on planning on to tell people about this? I've heard about the gradual disclosure concept for a while, but as I, was... I forgot where I got that information. But but the uh, the truth is, there is going to be no none no disclosure for at least four or five generations. The government is not going to go out and say, "Well, truth is, flying saucers are real and." We even met some aliens. That will not happen for several generations, maybe four or five generations. And then we'll be slowly indoctrinated. There's no reason to indoctrinate anybody now. They're not ready for it. They're really not ready for the information. There's some, like uh, Stephen Bassett, and, uh, who think it's it's our right to know, you know who's out there. Well... Everything is so big out there, people couldn't even imagine. For instance, there's a billion, billion, billion Earth 
just like this one with people just like us. Some are more advanced, some are less advanced. But the universe is infinite, and by infinite it means there is no end. It didn't start 18 billion years ago. There was no Big Bang. It was always there. So no disclosure. I say four or five generations. Is that from now, or is that including you know the three previous you know that have been around since this whole thing started? As far as you know, in the contemporary time. No, no, four or five generations from now. Oh, geez. Each generation was what thirty, forty years. Yeah. So you and I are shit out of luck, pretty much. Yep. Oh man. Well, that's sort of like something I was thinking about the other day, too, as far as the disclosure thing goes. I feel sometimes like this thing, and, and you kind of mentioned this, and I'm moving a little bit into the Art Bell uh, Lear briefing from the fall of 03, and uh, you say it was this, the secrecy is so out of control that most people want immunity and want out. Uh, there's so much secrecy that so many, and so many double and triple blinds in place that it's unlikely that this thing can ever be dismantled. I wonder sometimes if, yeah, the information and all this stuff sort of started coming to, uh, you know, humans, I guess you could say, uh, in full force, you know, in the 30s and 40s and maybe earlier than that. But that's sort of the general starting point. And I sometimes wonder just sometimes if the chain of evidence and information is so skewed and, and ragged, if you will, that I wonder if anyone really knows truly what's going on anymore anyway. Like, you know, all that original generation of guys from original MJ-12. You know, they're long gone, and, and how, how well the information actually gets passed from one generation to the next. Yeah, they're long gone, and, and those ideas are long gone. And uh, the truth is, uh, the bad guys are in charge now. Uh, they won't be in charge forever, but um, Earth will never be a peace-loving planet, ever. Uh, it's here, and... and uh, and a lot of bad guys are sent here to, to try and improve themselves, uh, but it will never be a good place. And even if the good guys were in control, there's always going to be conflict somewhere. But uh, right now, the bad guys are in control, and there's nothing we can do about it. And, and uh, you know, I can tell you that 9-11 uh, 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 was a ruse. You know, they killed 3,000 people unnecessarily. There were no Arabs. We didn't have a fight with any Muslims. No, there was no uh, uh, Osama bin Laden or uh, Osama bin Laden uh, uh, organized that thing. It was all organized internally and done extremely well uh, by the guys at the top. Yeah, yeah. So if they're going to do that, you can be pretty well assured that there's going to be no disclosure. And if there is a disclosure, it'll be a false one. It'll be um, aliens are here, and uh, they have asked us to tell you, uh, you know, turn in your guns as quickly as possible and, uh, you know, BS like that. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that in a little bit because I do have these – what you're saying here in the notes for sure, because uh, I do want to talk to you about 9-11 and this uh, false flag alien invasion that uh, you've mentioned before. But uh, the only other thing I wanted to ask you about here from the 2003 Lear briefing is the human mutilations, because I have rarely ever heard anything about human mutilations, but you talk quite a bit about them in various places. So I guess talk a little bit about, you know, human mutilations, how often they go on, and what might be the reasoning behind that whole thing. 
I don't know. I know that they go on. I know that it's very, very secret. Uh, I don't think it's the Greys that do it. It's uh, some of the other aliens. And some people, you know, say, well, there's five or six species that we know about and work with. And some say there's 90. But the fact is there are billions of different aliens. Every kind of monster, every kind of figure that you can think of exists as far as aliens. Wow. So, yeah, there are some uh, uh, pretty nasty people out there, and they do some pretty nasty things, but it's not the grave. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about 2012. I know that uh, you think it's a scam, and I'm pretty much in agreement with you on that. I sometimes wonder if it's um, in part a scam to undermine all the work that people in the paranormal world are doing because it's going to turn into sort of a, a Y2K effect. Like maybe this is some kind of big setup to take us, to knock us a few steps back. What do you think? Uh, I don't know what the reason is. I believe Sleeper, he says nothing is going to happen of that kind. He said there will, will, there will be the continuous little wars that we have. There might even be a nuclear war. But there's going to be no crashing planets, no um, uplifting of humans, no, uh, you know, nothing that would affect the entire world. It's just, it's just BS, and I keep hearing it. Uh, the best story is uh, the NASA scientist <clears throat> that was on his deathbed, and he told his family that, he couldn't tell them much, but he could tell them that something was on the way and going to collide with Earth. That's all BS. Uh, they're fed all that stuff. It ain't going to happen. And then, now, I don't know if you were saying specifically in 2012, but you do say that, that you think this false flag alien attack thing is going to happen. Uh, you say, absolutely, that's what they're probably going to do. So, now, do you think that's going to be 2012 or just some other, you know, at any time, pretty much? No, they're not going to do it. There's not going to be any alien attack uh, coming along in the next many, many, many generations. There should be no reason for any alien attack. I mean, the fa a false flag, the hologrammed alien attack that you mentioned in the... Uh... Yeah, that I mentioned. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, of course, Warner Brown Brown's secretary said that that would be the last of the four things that we're going to were going to happen, but um, I don't believe that anymore. People hang on his every word, even the prepositions. He could disarm you with his looks or his hands. Either way, he can speak French in Russian. He is the most interesting man in the world. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I don't always drink beer. I do. I prefer Dosakis. Stay thirsty, my friends. Let's talk a little bit about your interest in the moon, of course. You're, you're big, obviously, the website, livingmoon.com. You're really big into uh, what's going on over there on the moon. For starters, this is less to do with the moon, but it's within the same realm. How do you think they're going to handle commercial spaceflight with regards to covering up UFOs? Because you'd presume that once the civilians start being able to travel into space, then it's going to be harder to cover up any sort of uh, UFO activity or even, you know, U.S. UFOs, if you will. Well, as far as I know, uh, nobody's been to the moon, and the reason is the Van Allen belt extends from 450 miles 
out to uh, 25,000 miles and the people that say, well, the Apollo went through it so fast it didn't make any difference. That's not true. That belt there, that Van Allen belt is built, was put there for one specific reason and that was to keep us from going anywhere. This is a jail and, and we're, it's a prison and we're going to stay here until we learn to live our lives with integrity and without uh, envy, hate, and greed. And we're not going to be spreading our type of democracy to any other place because uh, of the type it is. It, like I'm saying, like the type of democracy we're trying to spread to Iraq. <laughs> yeah. We aren't going to be going anywhere now. We will take little steps. There have been many thousands, maybe even millions of people taken to the moon, but they're guests, and they're shown what's up there and taken for rides and, and shown all the cool stuff there, but uh, they don't talk about it a lot. There's only a few books uh, out where guys are talking about it. One was Howard Menger. Howard uh, was taken to the moon in 1956, and he spent a five, about five days there. Uh, they took him on a tour and uh, showed him all the industry and all the interesting stuff that was up there, and uh, I, I really had a good time, and he wrote the book From Outer Space. I think it's called From Outer Space to You. They're hard to get, and uh, Howard died, uh, uh, I think, last April or last March. Uh, I used to talk to him occasionally to get details on the moon. For instance, I wanted to know what the color of the sky is, the daytime sky, and he says it's a saffron yellow. So all the pictures that I publish of the moon, I always put a saffron yellow sky. As a matter of fact, I even sent a number of swatches with different uh, shades of saffron so that he could pick the exact one. And uh, I think on the living moon, we have the actual set of swatches where he put his X on. That was the color that he saw during the daytime. Okay. Now you're saying that no one, none of us, no humans or whatever, aside from what you're saying earlier about the souls and all that stuff as babies going to the moon, what about a secret space program? Are, are there people, you know, in a secret space program going to the moon or they can't get through the Van Allen belts either? No, I, my opinion is I don't think we've been to the moon yet. Now, possibly we have. We do have a secret space program. Uh, it's under the uh, United States uh, Strategic uh, Space Command. I forget. I think it's USS Space Command. Uh, but anyway, um, there's currently, uh, well, let me ask you first. How many astronauts do you think are current and qualified? And by current, taking a, a, a rocket flight uh, and uh, at least once. How many astronauts do you think are current and qualified? Uh, in the United States. To like go up in the shuttle, you mean? For anything. Um, I don't know, maybe 20? There's 5,000 current <laughs> astronauts current. Wow. Qualified because we have so much stuff that's going on. We have man-rated rockets that nobody knows anything about that launch every day. And the shuttle is just kind of a cover. Every couple of months it goes up. As a matter of fact, last September, I've never been that much interested in the shuttle. You know, it goes up and comes down and big deal. But um, I got to thinking, 
watching it go up and the three days it takes to catch up with the International Space Station. Now we know the International Space Station uh, has an inclination of 50.6 degrees. So if we want the shuttle to match it, the shuttle has to match 50.6 degrees. And if we want it to catch up with the shuttle, we have to wait, since it takes the shuttle nine, nine and a half minutes to get to orbit, we should wait until the the shuttle is nine and a half minutes behind us uh, coming our way to Cape Canaveral and then launch the shuttle and it should be there in nine minutes. But for some reason, for the last 25 years, it's taken three days for it to catch up. Same thing on undocking and deorbiting. When they undock from the space shuttle, it should take 54 minutes before landing at Cape Kennedy. But it doesn't. It takes two days. So I, when I was working uh, above topsecret.com and working with those guys, I heard all kinds of excuses about why it took so long to get back. They said, well, first of all, they've been working 10 days straight on the shuttle, and they need two eight-hour rest periods, and then they've got to do all their exercises, <laughs> and then they've got to do their checklists. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is bull. And so then we started talking about why did it take three days to catch up? I mean, after 25 years, couldn't we just figure out when to launch it so it would arrive in orbit at about the same time <laughs> the ISS passed over? Oh, well, no, we we can never get it aligned, and it always takes three days. Well, we got to checking around, and we had a good friend who had a really inside website from Russia, and uh, we found out that just before the space shuttle ever arrives at the ISS, that uh, two Russian spaceships, um, I forget what they're called, not Soyuz, it's the other one. Uh, but anyway, two of those arrive there at the ISS. So when we put the whole mess together and figured out, looked at the manifest, and what's on the manifest, which is primarily food, we figured out what they're doing is when they take off, we have eight or ten, possibly twelve, secret orbiting weapon satellites. And what they're doing is they're stopping at each one to drop off a little food. Hmm. And uh, that takes them three days to get to all maybe six of them. And then what they do is when they get to the International Space Station, those Soviet rockets have brought up more food, and what tipped us off was fruit. you got to have fruit if there's going to be people living for any length of time in space. So that fruit is loaded onto the shuttle, and then the reason it takes to get two days back is they've got three or four uh, more uh, uh, weapons orbiting uh, satellites to feed, yeah. to drop food off at and that's what they're doing. Interesting. Okay. So that is within the realm of a secret space program. You bet. Yeah. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around sort of where we're, where we're at as far as what you think was going on then with the Apollo things. I know you've talked quite a bit about the fourth astronaut that was in Apollo 1. 
um, and how he died and how they covered that all up. Now, was that the plan going forward all the way through the, each of the Apollo missions? Was it always a fourth man in there, or did they abandon that after that? No, it was always a fourth man in there, and it was always Joe Shea. And Joe Shea just happened to be uh, – he was the head of the Apollo program, and uh, he happened to be in New York that day. Uh, nobody knows exactly why he was in New York, but we know that the uh, that the murder of Virgil Grissom was specific. It was specific because they wanted to tell everybody else, all the astronauts, look, keep your mouth shut or this is going to happen to you. And that's why they did that. Um, they did have one of the secret astronauts in there uh, in Joe Shea's place. But the reason the reason they put those guys in there is they had an extra headset and, and uh, mic in there that, that he could, could communicate and uh, help work out the problems. They just didn't let those three guys uh, suffer through the problems themselves. They, uh, you know, they needed help on these things. And of course, the whole thing was a farce anyway. There was never going to be any shot to the moon. Probably what they did is they shot off the Saturn V as if there was astronauts on it and then uh, hustled the um, astronauts over to uh, Johnston Island, which is in the middle of the Pacific with an Apollo uh, command module. And then uh, when it was time for them to come back, uh, they put them in the uh, Apollo command module put the whole thing in a C-5A, went up, and uh, pushed them out. And, of course, the three parachutes blossomed. And, of course, all the public really saw was the Saturn V takeoff and the and the um, parachutes bringing it down. That's all they saw. Now, one of the interesting things is there's a video on YouTube, and it's a picture of Neil and Buzz and Michael getting out of the helicopter that just picked them up from Apollo 11 and landed them on the deck of the um, Hornet. And uh, there was, they put up some stairs, and there was like uh, about five or six steps, five or six flights that they had to get down yeah. to get to the deck. And then the quarantine vehicle was about maybe 50 or 60 feet away, and there was a door in that. Well, if you look at that very carefully, you see those astronauts bound, jump down those steps, each one of them barely holding onto the handrail, walking briskly across the uh, deck and swinging themselves into the door of the uh, quarantine vehicle. Now, you tell me anybody that's been 11 days in and no gravity on their back that could swing down a set of stairs <laughs> and walk across the deck without wobbling a little bit. I'd like to know about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, the Russians had a picture of the guy who paid 20 million bucks to go up there, and of course, the pictures of him, he was, he could hardly walk, you know, he was wobbly for a couple of days, Yeah, and that's what happens to you, but that's only one of the little secret indications that uh, that they screwed up on. 
Now, what do you think the motivation was then to fake all this stuff, just to freak out the Russians, or because they already had sort of committed to doing it, and they didn't want to lose face to the American public, so they just sort of faked it? Or what do you think the motivation was behind the No, the we've faking? always been allied with the Russians. The Russians have always been just a little bit ahead of us. Uh, they were the first ones to the moon. They were the first ones to photograph the moon. They were the first ones to, to uh, set a vehicle down on the moon, take a scoop, and bring it back. They've always been just a little bit ahead of us. The reason we did all of this uh, was for the money to build the secret space program because uh, between 1966 and 1970 is when they were launching the first pieces uh, of orbiting satellite that would, would become these weapons, uh, and they're fantastic weapons that they use. Okay, so if there is a secret space program, it's more geared towards uh, weapon development than exploration. Right. Okay. You don't really know either way, I guess, then if this, if there is a secret space program, if it can get through the radiation belts. Yeah, they don't have to because uh, it's 450 miles out. And the um, ISS is, uh, I think, 210 miles, and yeah. these secret uh, satellite stations are no, no more than that. Okay, so it's like all so contained go through the belt. within that bubble anyway. Now, right. one of those weapons is a weapon that uh, is a um, weapon that uh, disassociates molecules. In other words, it can take anything apart down to its its little element. And that's what shot, uh, that's what reduced both of the World Trade Centers to nothing. Now, if you go to any demolition expert and say, okay, let's have a 100 story or story building. If we do this uh, demolition perfect, how much of that building is going to be left? And they said, well, you know, it, uh, demolition just demolishes it, it doesn't disintegrate it, so you're going to have about 14 stories left. So of the 110 stories of the World Trade Center, uh, we know that there was only one story, barely one story left, but there was clouds of dust that was 80 microns in size. So one of those weapons that we put up there was aimed at both World Trade Centers. It got one about a little uh, before 10 and one at, uh, I think, 20 after 10. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, That you you are right on the same pace as I am here with the notes. So you're, <laughs> that's right, right at the next point I was going to ask. Talk a little bit about your theory here that the uh, the 9-11 airplanes, for lack of a better term, were holographs. Yeah, I get a lot of criticism for that. Very, very little support because, you know, I spent my whole life delving into secrets. I just, I love secrets. And uh, I love to see where things are going on and listen to people. And, and if you listen to people, you find out a lot of information. And I've been here since 1973 here in Las Vegas. And this, of course, is the center of secrecy. And no matter where you go or who you go, if you just, if you just listen carefully, you'll find one little teeny piece of information that fits in there. Well, um, a few years ago, I was at the um, San Jose UFO conference, and I stopped on my way back in to see um, uh, Norm Bergren. Okay. He was a scientist with Lockheed for 20 years. He knew a lot of information. 
and he had been retired about 10 years. And I would, uh, and he's, he wrote the Ringmakers of Saturn, and he's the one that used the uh, Voyager photos to find the spaceship that's floating in the rings of Saturn that's 30,000 miles long and 2,400 miles in diameter. And he's got pictures and data. I mean, this guy is a real, real intelligent guy. He's, he's approaching 80 now, and uh, he's getting up there in years, but I go by every year to see him. And about four years ago, I went to see him, and in our conversation, I mentioned that I thought that the World Trade Center, uh, the airplanes might have been holograms. He says, well, I wouldn't doubt it, because I'll tell you why, John. He said, about 15 years ago, I was going to work uh, with a friend of mine down the Los Altos. Uh, he lived in Los Altos uh, Hills, and he takes the Bayshore Freeway down to Sunnyvale, where Lockheed was, where he worked. And he says, we're driving along in the morning, about, you know, uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, bright, sunshiny day. And he said, we look up, and here, 200 feet above the car, is a 747. Now, there is absolutely no way a 747 should be there because San Francisco is 30 miles to the north. San Jose is, uh, you know, another 15, 20 miles to the south. Um, and no, no reason for a Boeing 747 to be 200 feet above their car. And he said they both watched it for about 15 seconds in utter amazement, and then it just flashed out. Yeah, hologram. It was a hologram. And then uh, I had a friend from New York, uh, a lady who's in the advertising business, uh, and actually in the casting, movie casting business. She has two degrees from Harvard, uh, one in astrophysics, and I forget the other one was, but she is a brain. But she didn't want to go into either of those fields. She wanted to go into movie casting. So anyway, she ended up out here with my wife, who's a movie caster. She is a CSA, Casting Society of America, member for many, many years and casts a lot of the movies that come to Vegas, like uh, Casino and uh, and the Mars, Big Mars Attacks and a lot of those movies. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they were we were having dinner together. And uh, we started talking about holograms. And she says, I'll tell you my story about holograms. She said, in 2001, I was invited to a very special showing and demonstration called The Future of Television. And uh, she said there weren't more than 30 of us. And we were in a very, very plush auditorium, very small auditorium, but it was very plush very well lighted. Uh, there was big names there. I don't have to tell you the names because you, you know them instantly, but there were some pretty high-powered people there. And what they did is a guy came from backstage, middle European or older European, white hair, glasses, uh, talked with a thick accent, came up to the podium and started giving a lecture about television. And he started back when they... Uh, invented the, um, what do you call it? Cathode tubes and that's Cathode tube. And uh, how it advanced from there. And it was kind of a boring, uh, it was nothing what they were expecting. And and this guy uh, would step off the podium, off the stage, 
down the steps, walk up the aisle, looking at the people, wipe, wiping a, uh, his glasses, cleaning his glasses with his handkerchief, then walk back, then walk up the stairs, walk up to the podium, and then after 20 minutes, uh, it was over. He says, thank you very much, and then he disappeared. And what it was, it was a demonstration of how far holograms are coming. In other words, the next generation of TV will be holographic that you don't have a tube. You'll have a little control that you can put the whole picture wherever you want. You can put it on the table. You can put it on the floor. You can put it on your desk. You can make it bigger, smaller, whatever you want. And, they, and you know, since the movie industry had that in 2001, you can imagine when the military had it, which yeah. was probably 10 to 15 years before that. Absolutely. Now, I remember you telling that story in the video. Like, who put on that presentation? Some movie studio or? Yeah. Okay. It was the it was the, the future of television. Interesting. Okay. Was it like secret? Because I never heard anything about that until I heard your story. I don't know. She didn't say, and I didn't ask her whether it was a secret. I don't know whether they were told not to mention anything about it, but she didn't have any qualms telling me the story. Yeah, yeah, because you'd think you'd hear about it, that you know. But I guess if it was all bigwigs and stuff, you know, you never know what how it works out there. So, is there a connection between the 9/11 events? And the whole UFO issue. No, the the 9/11 event was for uh, four or five reasons. Number one, we wanted to invade Afghanistan, and we needed to make the Arabs, Muslims, look like our enemy. And we needed to make make people think that 19 Arabs crashed in our buildings, killed all our people. And uh, and we were going to go get them. So we went into Afghanistan and, and invaded Afghanistan in 2003. Well, we weren't after the Arabs. What we were after is the uh, poppy growing area of the Hindu Kush. The Hindu Kush extends from the middle of, of Afghanistan up into that northeast corridor. Nowhere else, not in the south, not in the north. But the middle, from the middle of Afghanistan up to that uh, northeast corridor that's called the Hindu Kush is perfect growing area. It's perfect temperature and perfect altitude. And in 2001, the um, world output uh, percentage of Afghanistan of uh, poppy and poppy-related, uh, opium-related products was 12%. In 2007, it was 95%. Now, the reason it was 95% is we went in and we took it over. We showed them how to cultivate, uh, showed them how to harvest, showed them how to package, and then, we, of course, we took over the distribution and uh, and sale. Yeah. And, of course, all of this is used for black projects. And that was the main reason uh, that we attacked Afghanistan, and it still remains the main reason. And a few uh, days ago, there was a article in the New York Times that said we were going to send 50,000 Marines uh, into the Helmand, and uh, there was two other provinces, and so I looked it up, and they're in the south part of Afghanistan. Oh, they were going to send them there to wipe out the opium production, which was financing the uh, Taliban and the uh, Al-Qaeda uh, armies. And uh, it was like it was going to be a big deal. 
well, it just happens that the, the places they're going, there aren't any poppies growing there because it's not a good area to grow. So it was a good story, uh, but it wouldn't get past the truth because the real a poppy area is growing is in the northeast of Afghanistan. And another interesting story is I had a, a B-1 pilot over for dinner the other day that uh, had flew B-1s in Afghanistan. And when I was telling the story, he slapped the table and he says, no wonder. And I said, no wonder what? He says, I keep wondering why there's a no-fly area over the Hindu Kush. And I keep telling my a commander that that's where the poppies are growing you can see them you know there's thousands of acres of them yeah and uh you know he never got an answer from his commander but he says now it all comes together that's why there's a no-fly area in the hindu kush okay so that's one element behind the whole 9-11 thing and yeah the other element was uh to steal the oil from um, iraq and also to make uh, we needed five major bases in Iraq so that we can attack Iran. The reason we want to attack Iran is because the pipeline that goes from the Caspian Sea down to the Persian Gulf goes right through eastern Iran and Afghanistan. And we don't want to share any of that oil with either of those or give them any money. So um, the attack would be to uh, keep them away from that pipeline if the attack ever comes. Okay, yeah, so no no real UFO connection, but we're going to presume, I guess, that the people behind 9-11 are also the people with their finger on the on the UFO information, I hope, unless there's two groups. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty much the bad guys right now. Yeah, okay, let's talk a little bit about the undersea tubes that, uh, that you've been talking about a little bit, and I'd never heard of this whole thing, and uh, you told a story about a little lake there in Nevada and how it, it uh, is a submarine base and acts as a, a conduit to the Pacific Ocean. And it runs underneath uh, the land out to the Pacific Ocean. The Pacific Ocean underlies California, Nevada, Oregon, part of Idaho, part of Arizona. And there's an uh, entrance to this place just north of Fort Ord near Monterey Bay that the submarines can just dive down and go under all these places. And it just happens that, you know, for 30 years I've been driving back and forth to Reno. My my folks moved up there in the late 60s, and uh, I was always driving back and forth. And I'd always pass this town, which is about halfway, called Hawthorne. And it's just a little, little town. There can't be more than 30,000 people, if that, that live there. But on one side of the road, as you're going north, on the left side, there's a guard gate, and a sign says Naval Undersea Warfare Center. And then on the other side, there's Army Ammunition Depot. And I could never figure out what the connection was here. But in the course of, you know, the 40 years that I flew, every once in a while, some guy would say, you know, there's a big submarine base down there. And there's a little lake, Walker Lake, can't be 15 miles long and can't be over 100 feet deep, and so there can't be any submarines there. <clears throat> and um, a few years ago, I ran into a guy who put the whole puzzle together, and he said, what it is, is there's a channel uh, from uh, just north of Fort Ord that the uh, subs go to, 
and they go directly underneath Hawthorne. And there's an elevator that goes down 4,300 feet to the level of the Pacific Ocean. And what they do is this is the main ordnance base for the Navy because that what's called the Army Depot, they make all the sophisticated Navy ordnance. And all they have to do is just drive across the road and go to the building where the elevator is and ship it down. And then there's a, you know, a huge base. I don't know how many subs are there, but probably, you know, 10, 15 that come in. And what they do is just load them up with uh, these uh, different uh, pieces of ordnance and uh, nukes and whatever they're going to put in there. And then they sail back out uh, to the Pacific. Just water under there. Yeah, it's the Pacific Ocean under there. Interesting. Is it like that all the way across America, you think? Possible. Because just the other day, I, I was told that um, there's a base in St. Louis, sub-base in St. Louis, and a sub-base, big sub-base in Memphis, Tennessee. And coincidentally, there's a large naval base there. Now, the base in St. Louis uh, was a place where they took the uh, nukes for experimental purposes, and a friend's father uh, took him one day and uh, showed him where the entrance was, and uh, then ran into another guy who said, well, now that makes sense, and I said, what makes sense? He says, why they're always dredging the middle of the Mississippi. He said, the barges, you know, only go down three or four feet, but they dredge the thing to 80 feet. And uh, I never could figure out why it had to be so deep. But if there's nuke submarines coming up all the time, then that's the reason why it's got to be dredged that deep. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and you had mentioned in the video there that you asked the guy if he'd been down in the tubes and that, that you should ask, uh, that's the thing to ask Navy guys. I guess, I, I presume then you'd heard about the whole tubes idea previous to meeting, obviously, previous to meeting this guy. Oh, for 30 years. I, it, they're not tubes. It's an ocean that's under there. It, okay. What he told me is where the channels, were the main channels to under uh, Hawthorne. Yeah. It's not tubes of water. It's, it's a whole ocean underlies California, Nevada probably goes all the way to the East Coast. Interesting. But anyway, when I asked him, I, the first question I ask any Navy guy is, uh, been down in the tubes lately? And some of them will say, tubes? What tubes? Do you mean surfing tubes? I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. And this guy just quietly said, every day. All right. I'll keep that in mind if I run into a Navy guy. I'll try and use that on him. Now, i got a couple Bob Lazar questions for you that people actually wanted me to ask you. I know that, you know, I guess the first question, this is my question, do you ever get tired of answering Bob's questions? <laughs> you know, because Bob doesn't really do too many interviews, and, and uh, you know, you've sort of become the caretaker of the Bob Lazar story in a lot of ways. Um, you know, how do you feel about that that whole turn of events? Yeah, I never, uh, I never get tired of it. <laughs> All right. You know, I'm happy to tell, because it was such an exciting period for me, you know, the most exciting two years of my life, and uh, he hasn't sent me an email for a year. He, you know, he lives in Langsburg, Michigan now, and has his business, United Nuclear, back there, and yeah. he's now the, one of the world's largest scientific uh, supply suppliers for colleges and universities and institutes of higher learning. Okay. And he, he's, he's so busy with his business 
that uh, he doesn't have time to email anybody, but I had my 65th birthday a year and a half ago on December 4th, and he showed up at the door, and it was really great for him to take the time. At that time, he lived in Albuquerque. To take the time to come and surprise me and and uh, be at my 65th birthday. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like he's a cool guy. I don't begrudge him or anything. And, uh, you know, much like the uh, the other stuff, I don't really have a dog in, in any of these fights, really. I'm an observer on the whole thing. The questions that people had sent to me were uh, that in the video you said that Lazaro's back working with the government. Is that still accurate, you think? Well, the reason I said that is because uh, halfway through the party, he said, I'll show you something. And he took out uh, a Los Alamos badge. Uh, that was current, and uh, I said, you back working with him? He said, yeah, finally, and then he told a little story. He said that when he was being briefed about coming back, the one guy said, now, Bob, we're not going to have any more trouble with you, are we? <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then the other question is, uh, and I'll... I'll just read this guy's question, so uh, that way <laughs> you don't think that I'm the one saying this. Uh, whatever happened to the Element 116 that Bob Lazar supposedly at his, had at his house and, and this is all in caps, don't say no comment. Apparently you said no comment when asked about this by Art Bell, so I figured I'd ask you about uh, this question here, Element 116 that Lazar supposedly had at his house. The Element 115, we had three pieces of them, and they were they were already machined. And I have always said that uh, that Bob stole them from Groom Blank, but of course nobody could steal anything from there because you're weighed and searched and everything. We got them from someplace else. But there are three pieces. And uh, one night somebody broke into his house and stole two of them. He had another one hidden. And so there's uh, still one piece out there, and I don't have any comment on that. Okay, that's fine. Well, I guess you did sort of just reflect a little bit on that time. Uh, you said the two most exciting years of your life. Does it hurt in a way that Bob's sort of been dragged through the mud for so long about the whole thing? Because it sounds like, you know, you were there, and your perspective on it is, is I'm sure, much clearer and sharper, and I'm sure you know more than stuff that ever came out, too. So, you know, I have a feeling that if the Lazar story's true, that you would know for sure because there would be elements to it that other people haven't, you know what I mean? That shit's been held back, that some stuff might have been held back that you guys knew that... Yeah, the people that say, well, uh, maybe he just convinced you of this story, and I say, well, look, on March 21st, 1989, I was over at Bob's house, and he said, do you want to go see a flying saucer tomorrow night? And I said, well, sure, what are you talking about, how? And he said, well, they're going to test fly one tomorrow at 9. And I said, great, where do we look from? And he said, there's a road, a dirt road, that goes into Groom Lake from the northeast, from Hancock Pass. And I said, yeah, I know, I've been on there millions of times. He said, we can uh, park uh, just before we get to the illegal area, and we'll be able to see it from there. And, uh, you know, the next night... Uh, me and uh, Gene Huff and uh, Bob's wife then, and uh, and I drove my motorhome up, got the, drove down to about where we thought we were still legal, drove into the desert, set up the scope, and there at 9 o'clock, here comes the flying saucer, and uh, it came up from behind the mountains because there's a mountain range between.
between the road and Groom Lake. And uh, whether the saucer took up from Groom Lake or whether it took off from S4, which is somewhat to the south, I don't know. All I know is it flew around for a couple of minutes, and I had my Celestron 8 telescope. And anybody that's worked with a Celestron 8 telescope, it's very difficult to track a moving object. But I finally got it locked in as it was uh, descending, apparently, for a landing. And I, you know, saw the flying saucer, and I said, uh, quick, Gene, take a look. As I moved away to let him look at it, my foot uh, wrapped around, accidentally wrapped around the tripod, one of the tripods, and, and he didn't get to see it. So that was the big laugh of the night that, that I was the only one that got to see it. But, you know, for the people that say, maybe he just told you a big story, and I said, well, it must be a pretty big story because he told me a day before when I was going to see a flying saucer and, and it took me out there and I did see the flying saucer at the exact time he said it was going to be there and it came up from Groom Lake. Now, some people say, well, maybe he was just a cook out there. And I said, well, if he was a cook, they certainly pass around a lot of secret information to the cooks. <laughs> yeah. You kind of mentioned Steve Bassett, and what about that whole exopolitics uh, movement that's going on? Now, you obviously are not anticipating disclosure anytime soon. It does seem like they do use a lot of the information similar to the stuff that you talk about as far as the Dulce base and deals with aliens and interaction with aliens and stuff like that. Do you think they're just barking up the wrong tree? Yeah, they're never going to get anywhere. I mean, they've got their hopes up. They've got congressmen lined up. You know, they've got a thousand... Uh, people that will testify, it's not going to happen. They're not going to let it happen. It doesn't need to happen. Nobody needs to know about all this stuff, and they're certainly not going to force it. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about the field of ufology? I mean, as we kind of said earlier about this schism that happened in the 80s, there's still a lot of people in ufology who are still, you know, measuring it by the thumb in the air, as you said earlier. <laughs> What about it? Yeah, uh, you know what? What do you think they're doing? Are they just—is it just a dying field, or, or is it already been, or has it been infiltrated? No, maybe? it seems that more and more people are catching on, and more and more sharp people. You know, I don't get many emails during the day. I get maybe ten or fifteen. No big deal. But every once in a while, there's a guy, you know, comes on and asks a real intelligent question about look, this stuff has got to be true. What can you tell me about this and that? You know, but it seems to be more and more people really interested in it. Interested in UFOs? Yeah. But what about the, just the field of ufology? I mean, they haven't advanced the science in 30, 40 years. Do we need some kind of new way of looking at it, or should we just wave the white flag and realize that we're not going to get the answers, or, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, the thing is, they they had the biggest story of the century, which which was the Bob Lazar story, and uh, most people didn't believe it. So what what else are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, take everybody for a ride. Now, do you think that that's just like ego, and you know, the idea that if it doesn't confirm to what they believe already, that that you know they're not gonna jump on board with it, or is there some? Yeah, all the people that are uh, 40, 50, 60, they've been brought up to believe, you know, there is no such thing. It's just planet Venus 
or the planet Jupiter, and if they you know, they probably, their minds won't be changed. But the younger guys, 10, 20, 30, uh, that are growing up, they've grown up with this, you know, this, the Benoit story, the Bob Lazar story, the Dulcie story, stuff like that, stuff that just simply cannot be discounted. And also, YouTube has concentrated uh, a lot of uh, UFO pictures on there. So, most people uh, are believers. Uh, the really anti-UFOs uh, guys that you see on the internet, uh, most of them are paid to do that. Government types. Yeah. Okay. And what about the whole idea that, you know, ufology has been infiltrated? We talked about the Bill Moore thing, but, you know, obviously what happened with NICAP and all that stuff. You know, without saying names or anything like that, do you think there's a Bill Moore of 2009 that, if we found out they were actually, you know, dissuading people or pushing them in the uh, wrong direction or something like that. We well, wouldn't... I haven't heard of anybody doing that, have you? Mm, no, you know. It was, well, this... was as big and as well-known as Bill Moore? No, well, uh, forgive me for saying this, but <laughs> aside from you, John, I don't, <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to think of anyone else. That... <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I would be the logical guy. <laughs> as I said, uh, you know, it's up to the audience to do their own research into this, and it's not my job to uh, tell them what to think. So Absolutely. Just ask the questions, and I'll answer them. Exactly. So, hey, here's some revolutionary paranormal radio for you folks. I'm not going to tell you what to think. It's up to you to figure this all out. That's why we have John here. Now, uh, I guess talk a little bit about the, you know, as I said, you kind of inspired Art Bell to get the whole coast-to-coast -coast thing up and running. What was that like, in a way, to to really be at the ground floor of all that? Art Bell was uh, actually a news guy, just just a regular on-the-radio talk guy, and uh, talk about sports, talk about this, talk about that. And then one day he heard about me, and I was on his show, and... He got so much response that uh, he changed his whole format and skyrocketed in popularity. And uh, he does give me credit for it because uh, when he got some award and it was announced in uh, Time magazine, he said, John Lear is my mentor. Yeah. Now, we came to a parting of the ways. Uh, in 2003 or 2004, he interviewed a science researcher for popular science. And, uh, they had a whole issue, uh, on the, uh, the mist of 9-11. And every myth that Bart Bell would advance, this guy would come up with some BS answer and Art said, that's what I thought, that's what I thought. In other words, Art, you know, bought the whole, you know, myth thing, um, you know, to the forefront. And the, and the, he didn't believe that 9-11 was a conspiracy, and he didn't believe that. And he lost half his viewers, and eventually, you know, he just uh, essentially disappeared. And he's on every once in a while. Uh, and he will always be known for how popular he was, but the breaking point was that one show that he did with, uh, on 9-11 and poo-pooed all the uh, conspiracy theories, and, uh, he, and he kept saying, yeah, just another wingnut conspiracy. So my avatar on everything that I did was a little wingnut spinning up and down on a screw. <laughs> 
Yeah. It was going to drive me crazy, so I just looked it up. It's Chertoff. Chertoff, yeah. Benjamin yeah, yeah. Chertoff was right. uh, Chertoff. And his uncle he was, was the head of Homeland he, Security, I think, or something like that. Yeah, it's his uncle that's, that's the head of uh, Michael Chertoff is his name, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. One's Ben and one's Michael. I'm not sure which one's which. Oh, Ben. Ben, that's the guy that was interviewed. He's the man. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's it. Now we got it straight. Nice. Thanks for looking that up. Oh, no problem. It would have driven me crazy, and I figured you're probably yeah. out of the same yeah, mindset yeah. that I am. Easy to remember. Now, I do kind of find it ironic, and I, again, I'm not. This isn't. I'm not taking a shot at you here. Um, just that, like, no matter what the area is, 9/11 and the JFK thing. You've you've said that the Mossad was behind the JFK assassination and uh, the UFO thing. It seems like you're always like way beyond what everyone else is talking about. Do you know what I mean? Like the 9-11 truth movement isn't talking about holograms at all, really, as far as I can tell. I guess, what do you attribute that to? Like I say, I'm so interested in secrets and, uh, you know, those airplanes, particularly the CNN video, an airplane crashing into a, a building. I mean, it, it cannot possibly happen like that. When the nose hits, the tail is going to come off instantly. Because not only are those girders set 39 inches apart, but there was only 37 feet between that and the core. So when the if, if any airplane got through the exterior, when it got to the core, which is 37 feet later, nothing else is going in. Everything's going to go to the ground, tail, fuselage, uh, whatever. Uh, but there was only you know three or four pictures. Of, uh, of stuff that came off airplanes. You put together four airplanes that allegedly crashed. That's 8.5 million parts. Every single one of those parts has to be made by a parts manufacturer authorized by the FAA, and everyone has to be stamped, engraved, uh, or written on a, a part number. And so we've never seen a single part with a part number that could be traced to any of those airplanes. Also, there's 90 miles between the four airplanes of wire. Every single in an airplane, every single wire in an airplane is stamped every foot, and it has where it's going to, where it came from, and uh, its uh, uh, its energy limit, yeah. its uh, electrical limit. And of course, there hasn't been one single foot of that found, not an inch of it found. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's just it, it's just ridiculous. No airplane crashed uh, in the Pentagon. Anybody says, uh, well, what's your best evidence that no airplane crashed in the Pentagon? I say April Gallup. She was a um, intelligence officer, civilian officer with the Navy, and her desk, or with the Army, uh, her desk was 40 feet from that hole. She said she saw no airplane, no missile, no drone, no A3, no small airplane, smelled no gas, smelled no diesel. All she heard was an explosion. And so she picked up her six-month-old son, who was in his uh, carrier at the, at the base of her desk, put him over her shoulder, and climbed out that hole that the airplane allegedly flew into. And as far as Shanksville... Uh, it's ridiculous. An airplane can't disappear like that. Uh, it can't go into a ground. I don't care how soft the ground is. There's got to be some parts left more 
than that little piece of turban that was in the uh, scoop of the backhoe. Yeah. Uh, I could go on and on about 9-11. I'm sure. The final 9-11, I guess, uh, question sort of comes out of this whole theory that you're putting forward. It's just that uh, what do you think they did with all the people then who were supposed to be on the planes? That's the biggest question that keeps from people from believing that it was uh, that it was a hoax. Uh, they want to know what did they do with the people that were in those airplanes, and I'll be damned if I know what they did with them. <laughs> okay, and then just a throwback to what I was sort of asking you earlier, just how you're on a different path, I guess you could say, on a lot of these topics. Why do you think the general, for lack of a better term, mainstream, uh, you know, fields, 9-11 truth, ufology, all this other stuff, why do you think they're they're getting it so wrong if, you're, if your stuff is right? Do you know what I mean? Um, they don't have to, the time to mess around and sit at the desk. I've been retired uh, for eight years now. I retired, it's, I retired at 60, which is a mandatory uh, FAA retirement age. And uh, I started up a little gold mine, which the BLM shut down. And all I have is that. Uh, but like I say, I'm curious. I have an interest. How could this happen? Uh, how could that happen? What? Where did this rumor? I just love these interesting rumors, and there's so many books out with uh, with good stories, and I just follow them to the end. Find okay. out uh, what I think, whether it's true or false. Fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, uh, you know, you were tearing it up there in the '80s when I was barely alive. I was only a youngster. I guess what what sort of advice do you have for people? my age, in, the, in their 30s and, and younger, because we have a lot of younger listeners and we've been trying to push more young people having an interest in this. I guess, you know, what, what sort of advice do you have for those people as far as, you know, examining these mysteries? Learn how to live your life with integrity and without envy, hate, or greed. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know about UFOs, 9-11, wars in Africa, starvation in Africa, starvation in Pakistan. That's not your job to worry about that. Your job is to worry about yourself. And what you need to worry about is living your life with integrity and without envy, hate, or fear, and expressing as much love to your family as you can. This doesn't mean a love you, darling, as you're heading out the door. This means taking your wife in your arms, looking her in the eyes, and saying, I love you very much, darling, and doing that with your kids, too. All right. Uh, one thing I did want to sort of ask you or sort of bring up, I guess, is just uh, the sort of attitude in ufology and, and other areas of the esoteric, you know, that this is like supposed to be, and I disagree with this point of view, and, and a lot of people seem to think that searching for these answers is some kind of like team sport, when really it's more of an individual search, and, and that kind of goes back a little bit to the whole Bill Moore thing, a lot of people begrudged him for what he did, but I don't, because it my attitude really is kind of what I just said, that, you know, you're on your own search for the answers and you're not really beholden to everybody else because chances are half the people are going to argue with you and half the people are going to want more information out of you when you, you either can't produce that right away or you have to keep some things inside. So I guess there's not really a question behind that. I just want your perspective on that whole idea. My answer to that, if you want to know anything about UFOs, go over to ADS. ATS, uh, AboveTopSecret.com, and read both the sleepers' threads. 
then uh, and then buy his two books and read about it, and you will know more than 99.99 thousandths of the people in the world. You will know the real stuff. Okay. To the people like you and me who are on this on the search for answers and stuff, I guess what's your take on the whole idea that there's some kind of responsibility, I guess, to the to the field? Because I don't really agree with that, but in, in the in the greater sense. Responsible for getting the information out? Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I don't believe that anymore. Okay, so we're on the same page there. There's a certain attitude, I guess, to just to sort of like elucidate it more. There's just a certain attitude that that we're supposed to be responsible for each other and, and police this UFO world and that kind of garbage that I just don't agree with because it, it's. No, they'll find out if they're supposed to find out. Uh, if they're not, then you know, forget them. They've got. They live their own lives. We live our own lives. There you go. That's almost the perfect way to end it. I just want to know where you see all of this headed in, as we go forward. You already sort of uh, said, you know, three or four generations. You and I are shit out of luck. We're <laughs> we're gonna just collect the information as best we can, but we probably won't get any answers. You think that's going to be the that's case? That's just a gradual thing now. There's more and more sightings of saucers, more and more crop circles. Uh, it's it's a gradual though. There, the aliens will <clears throat> disseminate the information at their pace. Okay. And uh, just the last question, we kind of already talked a little bit about it, that, you know, obviously Art and uh, George Knapp give you a lot of credit for really jump-starting their interest in ufology. And as we said, you know, you're one of the godfathers of Area 51. Do you ever, and I have a feeling that the answer is going to be no, because you're, you're, you know, you have a strong sense of personal uh, self, so probably not. But do you ever sort of get uh, annoyed or upset uh, that, you, that your contributions to the field have been kind of underappreciated over the last, you know, 15 years or so since the since the 80s when, you know, you really sort of burst on the scene and made such a huge impact. No, and what I try to explain to myself, the, the interest that I did, that I express and the research I do is for me, not for anybody else. Occasionally I'll write something, you know, but I don't feel it's my job or or uh, work to get any information out. It's all just for me. That's exactly kind of what we were just talking about. So uh, you said it better than I could have, and uh, I appreciate that. All right, so, of course, we've plugged the website here, thelivingmoon.com. What kind of stuff are you working on right now? Now, obviously, you've written a lot of stuff that's, you know, these briefings and state-of-the-field of the type stuff and, and postings at forums and stuff. Have you ever considered putting out a book or anything like that or – or any sort of stuff that you might be working on you want to plug? Uh, no, nothing I want to plug. <laughs> well, doing anything. That might be a first for a guest. So <laughs> 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 That's great. What about writing a book or anything like that? You ever thought about that? Even if it's like, uh, I'm really wishing more people like you who've had such a, a rich history in the field would write an autobiography like Bud Hawkins just did. My daughter is writing my book, and she started about a month ago, and I've just been sending her all my notes and all my papers, and she figures it'll take about two or three years. Awesome, awesome. Well, well I'm just going to let her handle it how she wants to, and whatever tax she wants to take fine with me. Sounds good. I look forward to that eventually coming out, because as I said, I'm really a big student of the history of the field as much as the phenomenon in the skies, so I'm glad we got to cover a lot of that today here in our conversation. Well, we've come to the end here, John. i got to thank you for giving us so much time, for being so open and honest, and, and you know, as I said, criminally underappreciated by some of the newer generation in the world of ufology. 
I hope more people take a new interest in you, especially as you've been sort of making this comeback over the last few years, and take a second look at what you have to say. And I got to thank you. You know, we try to end it on a, on a big note here at the end of the season, and I couldn't think of a better guy to end the season on than you. And the people that I shared the information that you were going to be the guest uh, across the board, regardless of what they thought about what you had to say, had the same reaction, and that was wow. So I'm hoping that the BOA Audio audience feels the same way and really enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I look forward to hopefully talking to you again in the future. Thank you for being our season finale guest this year. Okay, and thank you. That does it for the season finale of BOA Audio Season 4. Enormous thanks to John Lear for coming on the show and being our special guest here to close out the season. You can find out more from John at the website www.thelivingmoon.com Pretty simple, all one word, thelivingmoon.com. Check it out. And thus concludes the fourth season of BOA Audio. First of all, let me roll through the thanks here for all of the amazing guests we featured on the program throughout the season. Brace yourselves here. It's quite a list, but I want to make sure we give them all their due and thanks for appearing on the show. Jim Mars, Dr. Stephen Rourke, Adam Davies, Charles Upton, George Knapp, Neil Gould, Gian Kassar, Stanton Friedman, Nick Redfern, Greg Bishop, Ken Gerhard, Ann Druffel, Adam Go-Rightly, Betty Mailer, Andrew Barnes, Paul Tate, Philip Spencer, Richard Dolan, Lauren Coleman, Paul Kimball, Micah A. Hanks, William Zabel, wherever you may be, Jason Offit, Tracy Twyman, Klaus Svahn, Marie Jones, Larry Flaxman, the amazing Bruce Rux, Pastor Robin Swope, Timothy Good, Webster Tarpley, Bud Hopkins, and last but not least, John Lear. What an array of guests, what an amazing collection of esoteric minds. It was really an honor and a thrill to be able to speak to so many top-notch researchers and rising stars in the world of paranormal studies. Thank you to all those great folks for appearing on Season 4 of BOA Audio, and I'm already looking forward to putting together the playlist for Season 5. Up next, as always, we've got to give some massive thanks to the outstanding staff at BOA. Let me go through the list of these folks for you. Leslie Gunter, Michael Chiron Brun, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Siniuk, A.M. Murphy, and our newest staff member, Marla Pena. Marla will be debuting at BOA on September 10th. Wanted to include her here in the thanks portion of the finale since she has been on deck to debut at the website for quite a while, and we're really excited to be bringing her on to the team. Speaking of which, this awesome team of writers has produced countless quality columns and musings about the world of Esoterica throughout the last year. They've really helped in taking BOA into a whole different realm. We're not just a podcast, my friends. We're not just an audio series. We are a complete esoteric think tank, and that is overwhelmingly due to the amazing work of the BOA staff. I can't thank them enough for their insight, their advice, their questions and guest suggestions, and, most of all, their unending support and friendship. This program would not be possible without the help and support of the BOA staff. So kudos to them. Thank you so much. I know they're going to be shouldering the load of content 
at BOA until the big return for the program for Season 5 in November, and I'm thanking them in advance for that. They're going to still be putting out amazing stuff over the next two months while we work behind the scenes to get not only BOA Audio Season 5 up and running for you, but also to get BOA 2.0 ready for our November launch. We've been saying it for years here at the end of the program, but it is totally true, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, you're only getting half the story. Check out the works of the BOA staff and make Banal of America a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. I'm not going to beat the drum too much here at the end asking you for donations, since we already did that at the beginning of the program, but I know that the people listening right now, they're the hardcore listeners. You stick around through the complete program, you listen to me ramble like a moron some weeks, you are the hardcore BOA audience, and I definitely want to turn to you now and ask you to please help us out and make a donation to the program and the website. I would really like to get the program into some solid financial footing as we begin Season 5, and that's why we're really pushing donations hard here on the season finale. 64 hours of esoteric audio, that's 24 more than last year, 35 guests, three additional episodes beyond our normal 31-episode order, and eight hours of international esoteric audio. We produced all that this past season for all of you great folks out there listening, and we just gave it to you. There was no charge to listen to all this audio, and it's going to be there forever. And how do we do that? Pretty simple, via donations from the great BOA Audio listeners. That's how we pay the bills to make sure that Banal of America Audio is up and running. As I said, I'm not going to beat the drum here. You know how to do it. You go to Banal of America or the BOA Audio archive page, click the PayPal button, and make a donation. You know the routine by now. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio keeping us up and running, commercial-free, and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Obviously, there is no next week. We've already teased the return of BOA Audio in November. It is, of course, BOA Audio Season 5. For the hardcore listeners, I'll give you another little nugget of information. I'm really hoping to have the season premiere on 11-11-2009, so... For those folks who stick around to the end of the program, you get a little inside info on when you can expect to hear the premiere of BOA Audio Season 5, and I'm pretty sure you know who the guest is going to be for that episode. During this off-season, what are we going to be working on? Of course, the Mass Mystery Weekend in October up here in Massachusetts, Watertown, Massachusetts, to be more specific, October 16th to the 18th. Nick Redfern, Lauren Coleman, Peter Robbins, Jeff Belanger, Nancy Talbot, Chris Balzano, and John Horrigan. Three events stretched out over the weekend here in October. If you're a BOA Audio listener and you want to attend, get in touch with me. and I'm going to do my best to hook you up big time for the Mass Mystery Weekend. You can find out all about that at www.massmystery.com. Check that out for ticket information and more info on the speakers. That's one thing we're going to be working on in the off-season. What about the other stuff? What about the stuff for the folks who aren't going to make the trip up to Massachusetts? I understand some folks can't do that. There's a lot of great listeners listening all over the world who may not be able to make the trip out here to Massachusetts. So what else are we working on for the great 
VOA audience. Obviously, as teased at the beginning of the show, a complete redesign of the VOA homepage and website in general. We're really going to gut this thing, and the folks we have working on it are really super talented people. Over the course of the history of BOA, I was the one who did all the coding and design for the website, so it had limitations as far as what we could do, because it had to be from my knowledge base. That's not the case anymore. We have professional web designers who have volunteered to help us put together an amazing version of Banal of America that we're calling BOA 2.0. Send me your thoughts and your suggestions. I want to hear them. For what you want to see at BOA 2.0. What kind of improvements and additions do you want to see at Banal of America? Now's your chance, my friends, to make a real impact and shape the BOA franchise. That's part one. Part two of what we're going to be working on here in the offseason is I'm going to do my best to really develop a more advanced recording technique for BOA Audio, try and change up the style of recording. We've been doing it the same way for four seasons now. It's definitely outdated. It's certainly technologically antiquated at this point, so I'm going to make a concerted effort to look into coming up with a new way of recording BOA Audio and making it the best-sounding program we can. And the final thing of the big stuff we're working on here in the off-season is fine-tuning the production end of the show. I know this season has been just wild in terms of lengthy delays between episodes and deadlines that have been passed. We're going to do our very best to eliminate a lot of the problems that happened this season. I want to make sure the BOA Audio Season 5 runs like a well-oiled machine, and that is definitely one of my goals here for the off-season, to eliminate a lot of the fat that happens in the production end and make this as streamlined as possible so we can get the episodes out to you as soon as possible, because I know a lot of folks have been a little dismayed here during Season 4 that it's taken so much time for episodes to get out to you. I feel your pain. I am definitely one of the harshest critics of our scheduling style that is out there, and we're doing our best here in the off-season to get a fix on that problem. Stay tuned to BOA, of course, over the next two months for more details on Season 5, on BOA 2.0, and all of our other plans as they emerge. As we've been saying the last few weeks, and especially here this week on the program, I want your feedback just because we're going to have some downtime here until November. That doesn't mean I don't want to hear from you. Now's the perfect time to write to us if you have guest suggestions, website suggestions, or just thoughtful critiques and feedback on the program. I definitely want to hear it, and we'll throw your email into the mailbag for BOA Audio Season 5. By now, you should know the three methods to get in touch with me, but let me roll through the list for you really quickly. You can either A, write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com, or simply go to Banal of America and click the contact button. That's really easy. And the third method is a little more interactive. That is, of course, the official Banal of America forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F. E .com. Fantastic group of folks there. Love talking about the esoteric as well as the non-esoteric. And we always welcome newcomers to the forum. Come on over, join up, it's free. Post your thoughts or just lurk. We'd love to have you. So those are the three methods, email, contact button, or forum. 
any of those gets your correspondence into my hands and believe me folks I write back everybody who sends me an email I get in touch with everybody who contacts me via the various methods Facebook Twitter MySpace I get back to everybody because I appreciate that you took the time to write to me and I'm going to take the time to write you back I want your thoughts and I want your feedback on season four and on what you want to see in season five and BOA 2.0 Finally now, we've thanked the guests who appeared on the program this season. We've thanked the outstanding and infamous BOA staff. But there is still one large contingent of people we need to thank. The biggest thanks of all must go out to the amazing BOA Audio listening audience. I'm going to do my best not to get too choked up here. It's always really sad for me when we close out the season. I feel lost for the first couple of weeks after we've wrapped up a season but next thing you know I'm already up to my neck in work for the subsequent season so I get over it pretty quickly but I'm kind of sad here uh, this week as we close the book on season four it's been a super long season I sometimes wonder if I drag my feet wrapping up the season because I always sort of dread closing the book on another year of audio but I want to really just thank the great BOA audio listeners you guys are awesome I know it's been a roller coaster season We've missed deadlines, there have been lengthy delays between episodes at times, but you've stuck with us, you've written us thoughtful and encouraging emails, you made the PayPal donations to help keep us afloat, and you continue to spread the word about this little, sticky, underground, esoteric audio show with the weird name that is BOA Audio. Personally, I'm beyond humbled to know that thousands of people from around the world are listening to this program each week. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for letting me into your homes and your iPods for the last year, and I really look forward to when we can do it all again, and hopefully it won't be too long from now. If you told me four years ago when we started this whole thing that I'd be sitting here talking to you over a hundred episodes later, over hundreds of audio hours later, uh, that we'd still be going and we'd already be lining things up for a fifth season of the program, I just wouldn't believe it. But you guys made me believe it's possible. Episode after episode, season after season, you've been just amazing to me. You've treated me so well. You've put up with my foibles and uh, my, at times, amateurish antics. And, uh, you know, you've, you've been there for me, and I really appreciate it. And I'm going to miss you guys so much. We're going to be back in November, and we're going to be back bigger and better and more awesome than ever with BOA Audio Season 5, the fifth season of this program. It is really going to be something special. And I cannot wait to share it with the people who've made it possible. You are the fuel that drives this machine, and I will definitely reward you for that support over the last four years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys are the best. So we'll just wrap it up here because I can just keep talking and I'm going to get emotional. So, <laughs> so we'll, just, uh, we'll just roll right into the signature close. This is Tim Banal thanking you for listening and signing off.